Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. I think a lot of our community came out of hip hop music and there was a sense that we were all creating it together in real time. And I, I love that when no one knows exactly what they're doing together. Do you intend this thing that you're creating to be a poem? And if it is, then there aren't really any other rules other than choosing something moving and meaningful to you. Because if you choose something moving and meaningful and you create the time and the space and you intend it to be a poem, the poem will almost write itself. The ritual is just paying attention. And it's a muscle like anything else, like going to the gym, you know, the more you lift, the stronger you get. Practicing gratitude. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is in Q. In Q is a poet. Why do I have a poet on the show? For long time listeners of this show, you'll know I haven't had any poets, but this one I do. I saw In Q perform live at Lewis House's Summit of Greatness, and I was captivated. So his ability to be able to hijack your brain and take it for a ride where you're out of your body and you don't even know what's happening is unparalleled. He was named one of the top creatives on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list. He is the first poet to perform at Cirque du Soleil. He's also a songwriter. He's written for Miley Cyrus, Mike Posner, Selena Gomez, and he's even co-written the official World Cup anthem. This dude is the real deal. He's unfreaking believable. Let's jump into this conversation with NQ. NQ, welcome to the show. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for having me. By the way, how cool is it that you have a name like NQ? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm Rob. <laughs> you know what I mean, I mean, you got, you nailed it. You got the NQ name, right? So what a gift it is to have you on the show. If anybody has had the privilege of seeing you live, they understand how excited I am to have you on the show. So I really, really appreciate you doing this. And I know you're traveling. I know you're in a hotel right now and you took the time to do it. So I am eternally grateful. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. You know, it's interesting about the name thing. I was given in Q, which is short for in question, when I was probably 15 years old. And uh, I was rapping at the time and very curious about life. And so one of my buddies was like, you know, we should start calling you Inquiry. And then Inquiry got shortened to NQ. And I rarely heard my real name after that. But my real name is Adam. And now that I'm an adult, NQ sometimes makes me feel like, I don't know, bizarre to introduce myself as that at a party or something like that. So if it's not a work function or, or something surrounded around my art form, it can feel a little bit douchey, to be quite honest. So you can call me NQ, you can call me Adam. Uh, I stand by the name. It's kind of my life philosophy. But, you know, I don't, th I don't think there's much of a difference between that nickname and who I actually am anymore. 
It's a really interesting observation. How do you use it in real life? Restaurant reservations, meeting somebody. Is your go-to, Adam, or is your go-to in queue? Just depends upon my mood <laughs> and whether or not I want to have a conversation about it. Um, if I'm in a social situation that has nothing to do with my art or work, I just say Adam. Uh-huh. And then, you know, like, obviously my wife calls me Adam. My mom calls me Adam. But most of my friends just very naturally, they call me Q. Q. Okay, perfect. So I think a good jumping off point would be to take you back to uh, what you just mentioned uh, a moment ago is, you know, growing up, uh, you were you were rapping years ago. So I want to take you back into... Uh, uh, let's say to the eighties in uh, Santa Monica, many of us have, I don't know, sort of an idea of what that Southern California, Santa Monica vibe perhaps might've been like in the eighties. But I'm curious from your perspective, through your eyes, what was that environment like for you? I mean, first of all, Santa Monica is an amazing place to grow up. It really is. It was, you know, the neighborhood that I lived in until we were around 12 or something like that. I was 12. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That, that was codependent. Me and my mom until we were 12. <laughs> anyway, so that was like a very diverse neighborhood and just lots of different types of friends from lots of different places. And so I really value that as a part of my upbringing. And I feel like even now I can get along with anyone from anywhere and feel like I can be myself within that. So that was really great. I mean, there was obviously a lot of affluence in Santa Monica on the North side, and yet it's become even more gentrified over the years. I mean, I would say Santa Monica now is very different than Santa Monica when I grew up. We were actually robbed pretty bad around that time when I was 12 and we ended up leaving and there was a uh, kind of a whole string of robberies in the area. And um, so we ended up leaving and moving to the other side of Santa Monica. And um, yeah, I just like, even in, in looking back on that time, which is not true now in retrospect, but at the time I felt like we were like fleeing, uh -huh. you know, not because the neighborhood was so bad, but our specific circumstance and what was going on was pretty complicated and difficult. Yep. And so we ended up moving and that's where I lived out the remainder of my high school years on uh, a street called Berkeley, which is kind of like borderline Santa Monica and West LA. Okay. And you're not still in California anymore, are you? Right now I'm in Utah. Um, no, I mean in, uh, where you live. In life? Yeah, we're yeah. in California. Oh, you're yeah. still in California. Okay. Yeah, we're in LA. Okay, because I was in Santa Monica recently, hadn't been there for a while, and I could not believe how different it looks with the homeless and tents everywhere. It was such a different place. So, you know, I was curious about how it's changed from, you know, from the eighties to now. So, um, okay. But I think, I, I mean, there's different ways you could approach that, you know, like Los Angeles, the homeless problem in Los Angeles is everywhere. Yeah. You know, and it's a really, crazy situation to see the, the tent cities. It's always been in downtown, but it, it certainly spread, you know, something, something needs to be done. Yeah, in for sure. Like uh, finding shelter for these people. A lot of it has to do with mental health stuff, but like even in the neighborhood that I was kind of born in until we ended up moving, there was a lot of like halfway houses around there. Yeah. So there was a lot of people who were transitioning out of like addiction and things of that nature. And so there was some homelessness when I was growing up as, as well. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about hip hop because I think perhaps, I mean, it's just my guess that that probably informs the work that you do today. So, you know, somewhere, I think around eight, uh, 13, you started getting really into uh, hip hop. Can you tell me a little bit more about that portion of your story? Yeah. Um, I just fell in love with the music and fell in love with the freedom. I don't think that I felt very empowered in my life, to be quite honest. Like my dad was not around at all. And uh, my mom's a school teacher and I didn't really have a lot of like role models or like adults that I like trusted in that way. I think my mom did an amazing job and uh, made an effort to find that for me. But for whatever reason, I didn't feel connected to mentorship and there was something about the freedom of the music 
that was really empowering for me to find my voice. And at the beginning, it was just kind of joking around. I was like freestyling and stuff like that. And then I actually found a strength in it. And there was something about hip hop at that time, too, where it was still defining itself. And nobody really uh, specifically could say this is what hip hop was because there were so many different elements and styles and um, MCs. And that was actually a part of the pride that people took in their art form was being different than everyone else. And so uh, even for me in Santa Monica, California, I felt an ownership over this music. I felt like you know, we would argue about who was our favorite MCs for hours and it was religious almost. Yeah, for sure. And then in freestyling, you know, I found my first form of meditation because you can't think about anything else but the next line, the next rhyme, especially when you're battling somebody and your adrenaline is going and your reputation is on the line and it could get physical and all of these different things, you know, so it just puts you there. And nothing else really in my life had ever put me in the moment, to be quite honest. I was very in my head. And so I think hip hop allowed me to get into my heart and get into my voice. And uh, it was something that has stayed with me for the rest of my life. That's so interesting. You know, I was recently in uh, Santa Monica taking a uh, transcendental meditation class. Um, I needed it. This like... um, this COVID shit has just been just sending me over the edge. Like, you know, the crazy, the chatter in my head, I just needed something. And learning a mantra uh, that I repeat, you know, for 20 minutes, twice a day, as, as silly as that sounds, has helped the chatter stop. And I had never thought of it in the way that you just described where you can't be in your head thinking while you are, rapping like you just you you can't you got to be you got to be present with where you are is we're going to get into this in, in a a little bit later on but is that the same for you when you're doing a live show where you know the piece so well are you able to still stay present with it yeah i would say mostly i am but there's also a part of me that's observing myself mm. because the pieces are memorized So I'm the puppet and I'm the puppeteer and I'm orchestrating or riding the energetic wave of whatever is happening in the audience. So I I have to pay attention to all of those things simultaneously. So I would say I am in the moment and I would say I am also observing the moment. Whereas when you're freestyling, it's very difficult to zoom out. Mm. You know, you can take things from your environment and incorporate it into your freestyle, but you have to stay present. Otherwise, the train is going to fall off the, the tracks. And I think that there's many things in life that allow you activities that can further plug you into that presence, whether it's, you know, that's why people jump out of a plane or that's why they rock climb or that's why they like playing sports, because, you know, something physical can really bring you into the now when you're in a competitive space, like nothing else can, it shuts off your mind. You know, the mind is the biggest tool that we have, and it's also a dangerous place to go alone. So you have to find outlets that can allow you to drop the mind for a while, whether that's meditation or or even sex, you know? I mean, honestly, that's some people use those things and then they wind up getting addicted to them and then it cycles into something negative. So everything within balance But really, all of it is about trying to shut off your mind for a minute and be in the present moment. Yeah, that's great. I I heard uh, Giselle Bündchen say on an interview about meditation, she said, uh, your mind is an instrument and you better learn how to play it because it's going to play you. (laughs) I I thought, wow, that's so good. So around, uh, if we fast forward a little bit out of 13 and take you to around 1920, um, you started doing some open mic nights, uh, doing poetry slams. Could you tell me what it felt like for you the night that you were at Dante's and you were ready to sign up, you signed up and you were ready to go on stage for the first time? What did that feel like in your body? You know, I have to be honest with you. I don't remember. Okay. And my memory is pretty bad in general. And I usually use the excuse that, oh, I have so many poems memorized. It's taken up all my hard drive. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But I don't know if that's true. I mean, maybe there were certain things that happened to me as a kid that I just kind of like shut off that part of my mind. But even things from a few years ago or, you know, when I was at Dante's Poetry Lounge, which is what it was originally called, and then it ended up getting renamed as just the Poetry Lounge. I don't recall the first night. What I do recall is that a friend of mine found a flyer about the lounge. And he said, do you want to go to this random open mic? And I said, yeah. And I showed up and I remember not the specifics, but I remember the feeling. And the feeling was a feeling of coming home. It was a finding my community. It was a place where people were celebrating vulnerability as a strength and exploring social and political issues And it felt like hip hop all over again. I think a lot of our community came out of hip hop music and there was a sense that we were all creating it together in real time. And I I love that when no one knows exactly what they're doing together. (laughs) There's something really special about that energy because then what's messing up? Nobody even really knows. You know, what's success? Nobody really even knows. What we know is what feels right in this moment to me and then to the people that are around us. So I got up on the first night. I don't remember at all what I performed or even how it was received, but I pretty much never left. I went every single Tuesday night for probably the next 14 years. It's pretty crazy. You know, it's, uh, it's so fascinating to speak with you about this because understanding, you know, what's behind the wizard's curtain here is just, you know, whatever glimpse and impressions I'm, I'm trying to get from this. I remember seeing you live. It was at our uh, mutual friend, uh, Lewis Howe's events. Yeah. And I remember that they said, first of all, I didn't want to go to the event because you know, Lewis said, it's going to be in Ohio. Would you come and support me? And I said, I'm not going to fucking Ohio. And he's like, please. I'm like, Lewis, I, I really, I don't want to, I need you to, not only do I need you to go, I need you to help me promote it. And I was like, I can't, I, 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 and then I looked and I see that there's a poetry guy that's reading. I was like, what the fuck is like Ohio and poetry? No, I don't want to do this. But I said, yes. And I was all in. And so I'm sitting in the seat with, I brought, I think literally a hundred people and I've got my, my arms folded and out you come. And I was like, great. Okay. Within 20 seconds, me and everybody were looking at each other and we are transfixed on you chills everywhere and having an out-of-body experience and watching you, you literally walked over to where we were and you stood on the chair and just stopped and then started performing. Mm-hmm. And it was the only way I can describe it was it felt like you hijacked my brain and I had no ability to process information other than you. Wow, that's cool. That's a great way to describe it. I've never heard it, uh, you know, quite put in those words. That's humbling. I couldn't. I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't take a piss. I couldn't. I didn't. There was nothing I could do than to hang on every word and feel everything that was coming out of you for the hour. Like it wasn't even like a minute. It was like you. I was like. Where does this come from? So with that long preamble, just to give you context, do you think this, that this is nature for you? Nurture? Is it something that somebody can learn? Are you just gifted? Like, where does this come from? Well, you can definitely learn it because I teach it and <laughs> other people teach it. <laughs> so I don't think it's rocket science, although you could learn rocket science as well, you know? Anyway, I do these workshops. Uh, we have digital courses and physical courses, at least before COVID. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll go back to that. And I've done it for companies and corporations and charities and everywhere you could imagine. And I know how to provide a platform for people to explore something important to them through the Trojan horse of poetry. 
And my personal belief is that everyone is a poet because everyone is a storyteller. Stories that we tell ourselves, stories that we tell other people. And so more than anything, it has to do with intention. Like, do you intend this thing that you're creating to be a poem? And if it is, then there aren't really any other rules other than choosing something moving and meaningful to you. Because if you choose something moving and meaningful and you create the time and the space and you intend it to be a poem, the poem will almost write itself. So that's the answer uh, to can anyone learn it? In terms of putting in your hours, you have to do it like any other thing that you want to master. And no one can really teach you what your voice is. They can just, and I'm just talking about for art, I just believe this, like from painting teachers to acting teachers to, I mean, there's people that can help you through exercises and insights, find avenues for you to experience your own voice, but no one can tell you what your voice is. That's like, you know, your soul's fingerprint or something, you know, someone can document it, but they can't really change it. It is what it is. So you just have to explore it and experience it. And the more that you explore it and experience it, the more you know what it is. And then the more you can give it away freely. In terms of my process, I've gone through many stages because I've been writing, you know, since I was probably 14, relatively seriously. And even my rapping was an extension of the poetry that I'm doing now. I mean, when I got up on stage at the lounge, I was literally doing my rapping a cappella, And then it wound up transforming over years into what I call my poetry today. So it's an amalgamation for me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I've gone through many seasons of my writing throughout those years. And now I just write when I have something to say. I've put in probably 30,000 plus hours on, you know, poetry or writing in general and performing, songwriting, theater stuff. So for me, I just try to stay aware for when I'm pissed off or moved or specifically inspired by something. And then I'll write that down. And that is my moving and meaningful way to start the next piece. So I'm also taking my own medicine. I want to pull on that thread for a second when you have something to say. I recently saw uh, Elton John interviewed and the interviewer asked him, how long did it take you to write Candle in the Wind? He said, less than 10 minutes, maybe five minutes. And I was blown away. I, I couldn't, I could not understand how that was even possible. And I think I'm piecing something together based on what you just said, which is, I think sometimes You know, if I'm trying to write a blog post or I'm trying to say something, but I don't really have something to say, I'm trying to manufacture something to say. It's like I'm banging my head against the keyboard. But there are other times where I am extremely passionate. Like, for example, I I took four months uh, to move to Florence, Italy uh, last year, and I fell in love. I love Florence, man. That is an amazing, amazing city. That's so cool that you did that. It did, and it, it inspired me so much that we just decided to move back. So we're moving next year. We're putting, uh, I have a six-year-old daughter. We're putting her in a, a school in Tuscany. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're moving to a palazzo in the city and everything's changing. Well, as you can imagine, I have a lot to say about it and why I'm doing it and I'm passionate and the words are just pouring out of me and people are responding to it like crazy. So the question I have for you is, do you recommend for people that want to do something creative, whether it, whether it is actually rapping or, or poetry or, or even just a book or a blog post or something, is there a way that you recommend that somebody get outside of them what's in them? Is there some, some tips around that? Like, you know, get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, close the door. Like, is there a ritual around it? Like, what's your thoughts on that? Podcasts are interesting because I kind of want to ask you about Florence and stuff like no, that. No, this is a conversation. So go ahead and ask me. I mean, do you speak Italian? Poco. 
Okay. Poco. I have, I'm taking, um, iTalk is a, uh, a, a great website where you can find a local language instructor in that country. So you can do any country in the world. And so we made this decision three weeks ago and I started last week doing three days a week uh, with a lady that is in Southern Italy and we're beginning the process of learning. So one of the things that she's teaching me is to um, learn um, a thousand words. So we are, we are in survival. <laughs> Cool. Now, so I got a little, you know, we're doing, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and everything is in Italian. So when I turn it on, I say, hi, how you doing? And she says, buongiorno, Roberto. Ciao, come stai? And um, I'm like, okay, I think she probably just said, good morning. How are you? That, like, that's how it works. Right. Cool. And what's, I mean, I know that you've been writing these blog posts, but what's the synopsis for why you have decided to uproot your life? There's something on the scale of living in Italy that is human in a way that I just can't describe. It is an assault on your senses in a way that I, I, I've never quite experienced before. Walking down the street, um, I, I, wrote, I wrote this, so this will help. I think one reason, this was an answer to something. I think one reason people come to Italy is to reset. There's something in the scale of life there that is just different from anywhere else I've been. There's kind of a human scale. When you go into the store, making conversation with people, you actually feel that you've almost made a friend. When you come out of the bookstore or a shop, contact is human, it's personal. People are interested in you, they look you in the eye, there's an intimacy to life there that I have not experienced anywhere else. And I think it renews your sense of life. I think that's secretly why people respond so profoundly to Italy. It makes them feel reconnected with their own lives because the scale of the human interaction is so intimate. Hmm. Beautiful. So, thanks. So that is just like, it's like, you know, the uh, Supreme Court judge, when they asked him about pornography and he, you know, defined it and he's like, I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Do you know what I mean? It's right. that kind of feeling. It's like when you're there and, you know, you're walking on cobblestones and, and you're seeing like a, you know, an elderly woman, 90 years old with high heels and neckerchief, red lips, and she's flirting with you, you know, and it's night and she's 90 and, and you're right. getting turned on. <laughs> you know? You're like, she's uh -huh. hot. <laughs> You're like, okay. <laughs> There's, Hello. I, 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 <laughs> I can't describe it. So I just, I need it. I, I came to, uh, I was in Atlanta for 25 years and I moved to LA because I wanted the weather. That's why I came here. And I got the weather. I got the beach and I got surfing full stop and Mexican food. But beyond that, I'm missing life and culture. And I want to walk the streets that Dante was in and Galileo. And, and I want to look at the architecture. I want to, I, I want to taste the food and, and, and have my kid be surrounded by countries that learn five languages and learn values that are important and not be living in the country where 50% of the people are feeling one way and the other 50% are feeling the other. And we're pointing guns at each other and blah, 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 blah. You know, so... Long answer, but that that's why. Well, but okay, so we'll go back to what we were talking about before. I mean, you can automatically hear how passionate you are about that. And so it's easy for you to write about it because it wants to come up. It wants to come up from the deep into the surface and it will come up and out any way that it can because it's top of mind for you and because you're actually making such a big change. But there's probably a lot of other things that you're equally as passionate about that aren't top of mind necessarily. And so, you know, you had asked me earlier about the ritual. The ritual is just paying attention and it's a muscle like anything else, like going to the gym, you know, the more you lift, the stronger you get. Practicing gratitude, the more that you are consciously grateful, the easier it is to be grateful and the more that you notice to be grateful for. 
So paying attention to where it is in your life that you're passionate and how you can then transform that into some form of art to bring it out into the world so that it mirrors that for whoever experiences it is something that takes you practicing it. Yeah. So look, if if somebody says to you, what's your purpose in life? That's such a big ass question. You know, what's your purpose? It's so huge. And I'm connecting this to the writing because a lot of times when you're sitting down to write, you're like, oh, this has to be the thing. It has to be great. It has to be big. But if you can't figure out what your purpose is, then just go one step down and then ask yourself, okay, well, what are you passionate about? And if you can't figure out your passion, then ask yourself, well, what are you enthusiastic about? And if you can't figure out your enthusiasm, keep going down, go all the way down until you're just, what are you curious about? Curiosity is actually easy to notice, you know? So start there, just say, what are you curious about? And then just follow those breadcrumb trails and it will probably lead you to the next step up. It might not lead you all the way to your purpose, but um, it's certainly something that's worth exploring in your art. And if you never pull on that string or follow the breadcrumb trail, uh, you'll never know where it could have led to. So I think that in that way, the process of paying attention to uh, what moves me to write is also the process of paying attention to what makes me feel alive in the world. Mm. And you're going to Italy to feel alive again. And you can go anywhere to make your environment spark you in the world. But you can also spark yourself in the world and change your environment. And it seems like you're doing both right now. I am. I think people give very little focus or energy on the where that they do things. They focus on what they want to do, why they want to do it, how they're going to do it, but they don't give a lot of attention to where, physically where, where are you living when you're doing it? And I just think that that dictates a lot of a lot of your life. I mean, you, you walk outside, you go to restaurants, you interact with people. It's really important. But, you know, you mentioned something about purpose and I agree with you. It's a, such a big ass word. And I don't know that we have a purpose. I mean, if you would have asked me what my purpose is at 20, it's different at 30 and I'm 55 now. It's different now. Like it, I hope that purpose is going to keep changing. Do you know what I mean? So I, I love that. And I love what you said about curiosity because there are many, many things I'm curious about, but sometimes because I don't consider myself an authority on it, I'm hesitant to write about curiosity about something I don't know anything about. But going back to, you know, what you said earlier about being in a room with people who don't who haven't figured it out. And all of you are just walking in the dark together, trying to figure it out together. There's something beautiful about, about not not knowing anything. Well, that's where discovery comes from. I mean, it's one thing if you were to write something from the standpoint of, I am an authority on this. If you're going to do that, you should probably be an authority. Otherwise you're going to be held accountable for what you say. But if you say I'm exploring something that Mm. I'm interested in, You know, that's probably the next level up from curiosity is like interest. You know, Mm. like I'm interested in this. I love explore because explore gives you permission and it signals to everybody around you that you got a, you got a magnifying glass and you're looking, you're inspector gadget, you're trying to learn and you're open. That's what exploration is. Yeah. I I mean, look, people, once they become an adult, forget how to play. And it it makes sense. It's not like, why do people forget how to play? Life is fucking crazy, man, you know? And uh, certainly the older that you get, the higher the stakes are, the more responsibilities you have, the less time you have. And the more focus, I guess, you spend on how you spend your time because you have an awareness that, there's an arc here. But I also think that, that allowing the seriousness to take away the play stops you from growing. The reason that kids grow so much other than their physical bodies growing so much is because they're always out of control. Their, their schedule isn't up to them. You know, they're always doing new things and 
they're always falling flat on their face because they're always a student in life. And then we get older and we don't really like that feeling of being a student. So we find things that we're good at, things that we can monetize, get validated for, and then we just stay there. And for me, for example, what I do for a living started out as pure play. And then once it became a career, there's this tendency, even in art, to have such pressure around it. It needs to succeed. It needs to be brilliant. It needs to live up to my last success. And all of those things are really crippling to exploration. Exploration is necessary for winding up somewhere new. So if you just want to repeat the same stuff that you've done in the past, I'm certainly not going to talk ill of that, but I want to discover new things about myself and about the world and about my art. And I want to fall flat on my face. What you know, good would life be if I was only a teacher? You know, it would just wind up being so boring. <laughs> I want to be a teacher and a student in every moment. So that's a really long-winded way of saying how important it is to actively pursue play in every area of your life. Not only like to connect with your kids, but to connect with yourself. Yeah, it's so true. A couple of things came to mind when you said that. Uh, are you a parent, by the way? Do you have children? No, I am actually recently married. Ah, okay. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And we are, uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm not going to get into that. But yes, we want to be parents and, and things are, I'm very happy. Things are, things are uh, uh, kicking right along. The, uh, the play piece that you were mentioning, uh, as you know, the name of this podcast is Work Hard, Play Hard. And all the pictures that you see behind you are trips that I take people around the world on because I spent so many years of my life just grinding out, working and trying to make money and, and ignoring um, those other interests in my life. And I realized at some point, you know, I only got so many more years left to live um, while I'm young and healthy and I want to start experiencing things. And so I found that there are a lot of people that are in that category, whether they, here's the thing, whether they love to do what they do or not, like, you know, our mutual friend, Lewis Howes, he loves what he's doing. You know, he, yeah. he's, he's passionate about it, but left to his own devices. And he's shared this on, on the podcast, left to his own devices. That's all he would do. He would just stay home and just keep doing it. Right. And it wasn't until, you know, or, or just as an example of what I do until I grabbed him and took him to Greece with me and, you know, partied with him in Mykonos for a week. And then he opened up to new sides, to new things that he didn't do. So that's what, that's what I do. Um, we're, we're actually getting ready uh, to go back to Greece in a couple of weeks. And we got another one in Lake Como this year. Oh, awesome. Um, that's yeah, great. It's going to be good. I love Greece. Yeah, Greece, Greece is incredible. Awesome. Mykonos is amazing. Scorpio, Scorpio. Uh, with a, well, they they add an S at the end. Yeah, Scorpios. Yeah, okay, Scorpios. If you look up, if you look on my website, you'll see all of us, including Lewis at Scorpios. It's the cover image uh, of our website. Oh, that's awesome. You know, it's funny. I I did that whole diatribe that I just did, and I of course knew everything that you said, but I didn't connect those dots when I was saying it. So it almost seems like that was like a pre prepared speech, but it it was just. You know, the I was, flow of our conversation. I was like, he's, he's good. I mean, he's teeing it up here. They, <laughs> so I love what you said about there is something in our desire to make it. It's almost like in the beginning when you have nothing and you fail, you cut, there's nothing to lose. But when you've got, you know, a guy like you who's got great performances and great poetry, I have to imagine that when you're working out new material, there's got to be a part of you that is got this balance of, I want to explore this and see how they react. And then this other side of it, it's got to be like, I don't want to fuck this up either. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do you battle with that? Yes. Or did, or, or did but- you? I'm at peace with the battle. You know, (laughs) I'm not battling with the battle. 
You know what I'm saying? I do. Uh, if I'm getting paid a lot of money to do a corporate gig or something like that, or to do a workshop, or if it's a big moment that I know a significant amount of people are going to see, I will usually stick to something that I know works. I mean, I'll play one of my singles or I'll tell the stories that I know will get a certain laugh as a release of energy and be the perfect bridge to the next thing. And I have individual poems that are singles and I have sets of 45 minutes that are singles and that I just know will work. But then if I need that validation in every single time I perform in order to feel okay about who I am as a human being, then it's probably going to be the fastest way for me to lose my creative voice, you know? And so I force myself to do some of the newest stuff or some of the stuff that I've barely memorized or to try telling a new story that might or might not be funny to other people, but it's funny to me. I'm the first person in my audience always when I'm writing or when I'm coming up with like bits in between my poems. And so as long as I think it's funny or I think it's fascinating or I'm a fan of the poem that I wrote, and it resonates with me, then I trust that it will resonate with other people. And mostly I'm right, but then sometimes I'm wrong. And then even in the wrong, I learn things. Right, right. And you get better next time. So you, so you, you got to play Hotel California because that's what they came there for. Right. But, but, but at the other side of it, you, you got to do the stuff that you like to, and you have to also be willing to try some new shit and see and be willing. So it's like a, it's an amalgam. It's a combo platter of doing all of those things. Yeah. Because otherwise people are just coming for hotel California. And if they're just coming for that, then you're not an artist anymore. You're almost a jukebox. Yes. And I don't want to be a jukebox. You know, I'm uh, friends with uh, Mike Posner and he has a great saying around this in terms of like, as a brand, once you create your brand, and you build it up and it has a certain amount of success as an artist, you almost unconsciously become a brand ambassador in, in terms of like, you're, you're not trying to create new things. You're trying to maintain the brand. It took yeah. so long to make this brand and it works and people are following you and interested in you and paying you Why would you want to mess with that brand? So what he does purposely is he will burn his brand down like every few years and he'll do it just so that he can see what's in the ashes. And you see from his career, if you followed it, he'll literally, he'll put out an album that is completely antithetical to the last image that he had. And he might not even be in that place when he's putting out that album. But it's such a dichotomy that it it messes with the audience. And then they go, wait, who is he? And then in who is he, he can discover, well, who am I now? You know, and so I think that's something that I I try to keep in mind as well as I'm kind of exploring my own artistic uh, process. Yeah, I've seen comedians do that. You know, like comedians that they have their go-to sets, and and sometimes there's one comedian I can't think of what his name is, um, where at the end of every year, everything is new. Like he can't. Carlin. Is that George Carlin? Well, it was Carlin, and it was also Louis C.K. Um, That's it, Louis C.K. Yeah, That's the one I was thinking of. Both of them yeah. did that. Carlin did it first, and then. Louis started doing it. And that's in stark contrast to someone like Seinfeld, who, you know, his philosophy is basically like, I worked all these years to make this set. Why would I not do my absolute best stuff? And I respect both camps. And so I just try to mix and match. I love that. You mentioned Mike Posner. He's the one that took a pill in Ibiza, right? Uh, that's yes. his, uh, okay, that's such a great song. You, anybody who's been to Ibiza really knows how good that song is. You've collaborated with people like Mike Posner and you've also collaborated with Miley Cyrus and Selena Gomez. I want to talk a little bit about ego. Not that you have one, 
We all do. I'm sure everybody has one, but not it does. Yours is not coming across loud and clear to me. That's not why I'm bringing it up. I'm bringing it up to ask two questions. First question is at some points when you're working with Mike Posner and Miley Cyrus and Selena Gomez, and you're collaborating with these people, do you ever pinch yourself and go, how the fuck did I get here? I mean, I'm working with the people at the top of their game. Like, is there, is there a moment where you're patting yourself on the back and you're high-fiving and you're just feeling good? Or is it just Tuesday for you now? I mean, Tuesday's pretty incredible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I've never had that feeling of uh, making it. Uh-huh. You know, there are certain people who do wind up having a moment, but it is really rare that someone has a moment that represents complete success for them in their art or mm. in their life. And when you ask people what's the most important moments, usually they say, you know, the birth of their kids. Always. You know, like, or getting married, you know, meeting their partner. All we have ultimately is our time. And it's who we spend our time with and how we spend our time. That's the most important thing. And it doesn't go unnoticed to me that we're spending time together. This is a moment of our life and it's not infinite. So this period of time that we have is the only period of time that we have and that everyone who's listening to it is giving us a part of their time, which is a part of their life as well. So I think that's really special. When I'm in those environments where I'm working with people who have had a lot of success in the industry, um, I'm usually just trying to be of service creatively and to soak it up as much as possible. I've almost never met a quote unquote star where I didn't get why they were, you know, even despite like maybe what I would have thought of them beforehand, like you know, there's been people that I've met that I wouldn't necessarily say I was like a fan of their work or I just wasn't aware of their work or their work isn't my style. But almost always when you meet somebody who's had that level of success, you're like, I get it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something about them. There's something about their perspective or the way that they carry themselves where they're able to hold that attention. So I don't know. Some of those moments do wind up being surreal for me, but uh, I try my best to make every moment surreal. You know, you mentioned time. Time is the only non-renewable resource, right, that we have out there. It's just when it's gone, it's gone. And uh, I had heard uh, at that same event I was at with you, Jesse Itzler uh, said, you know, the average person lives until whatever it was, 74 and he said, I, you know, I hit a point in my life where I realized I have about 28 summers left and I have to think about how do I want to spend those 28 summers? So you're right. I mean, everything is about time and, and staying present there. Okay. So as we wrap up, I wanted to, uh, I'm going to ask you some questions and roll with it. Normally I say these are weird questions, but for you, I don't feel like I need to say that. Um, you're just going to roll with it anyway. What's on your nightstand? Uh, uh, crystals and a picture of my wife. What do people often get wrong about you? They think that I have it all together because I can put into words things that are complicated for people and they can put that in their pocket and walk away with it. So they think I have it in my pocket, but my pockets are turned out. I'm figuring it out like everybody else and I'm enjoying the ride. What's a new behavior or habit that has most improved your life? Meditation was a big one. And then recently I've gotten into daily breathing habits in terms of Wim Hof stuff. And I've really enjoyed it. You know, emotion is energy in motion and the breath moves the energy. So uh, it releases emotion and allows me to be more in the world. What's an unusual or absurd thing that you love? You know, I watched The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. <laughs> 
<laughs> By the way, that's going to be my pull quote. <laughs> yeah. we were, I was laughing the other day. I was thinking, talking to somebody about the difference between uh, normal journalism and long form journalism. And in normal journalism, they're looking for that pull quote. And in long form journalism, you get into much more deep concepts and stuff like that. But God, if that's, it winds up being that headline. <laughs> you know what? I'm okay with it. I, I was, I went out to lunch with my friend like four plus years ago or something like that. And um, he actually was the person that named me inquiry, you know, mm -hmm. we're high school buddies and he yep. married, he has two kids. And he was like, man, do you ever watch the bachelorette? And I said, no, I've never watched the bachelorette. <laughs> and I've almost never watched any reality television, like Kardashians or anything yeah. like that. And he goes, you know, I think you should watch it because it's almost like a sociology experiment. Like in terms of like, you get to see what happens when people are in stressful situations and they're all in love or in love with their projection of the other person and how they compete. And he was like, I actually think you're going to find it interesting. So I go home, I DVR The Bachelorette and I watch it. And I thought it was the stupidest thing I had ever seen. I literally the whole time I was like, what is this bullshit? Like, why am I watching this? Jay really put me on the wrong thing. And then I turned it off at the end and I went to sleep. And before I went to sleep, I was like, that was bullshit. I'm never watching it again. And then I literally, I woke up in the morning and I was like, I'm rooting for Michael. I, I wonder what Amanda's going to do. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Somebody, somebody oh. did that uh, for me with 90 day fiance. Okay. Do you know about this? I have heard of it. I know from the title what it is, but I've never seen it. You, you basically, somebody runs into somebody and they do, they do 90 day fiance and 90 day fiance the other way. 90 day fiance is I met somebody online from Russia or Italy or whatever. And I think we got what it takes. We've, I spent some time with her. She spent some time with me, but we need, we need to be together. I'm going to bring her over to the U S the U S gives them a K one 90 day fiance visa. You either, it's like literally a K-1 is a reality show built, baked into just the, the document. Mm -hmm. You have 90 days to either get married or she's deported. That's just the way the K-1 visa works. Wow. It's, I'm telling you, if you're looking for something, you're going to have a blast with that one. You'll, you'll, if you, if, if you love the bachelorette, you got this it's one. It's like this, junk food for your mind and your heart, which is. You know, not necessarily something that I would recommend to other people, but every once in a while, you just want to have something that you don't have to think about, you know, yeah. and you kind of like relax into. So anyway, that's my embarrassing answer. I love it. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Uh, basketball cards, baseball cards, and now I'm into crypto. Interesting. What do people never ask you? Cause I know you get the same questions over and over again, but what do they never ask you? And you're like, I wish they did. I don't know why they don't ask me about this. You know, um, I'm doing my own podcast now and it's called inquire within within Q and I'm, uh, interviewing poets because I feel like I want to shine a spotlight on the genre. Some of the best artistic experiences I've ever had in my entire life was sitting in the audience, watching another poet on stage and I know that poetry is very different than most people imagine it in America and around the world, at least modern spoken word poetry. So I want to help lift that genre up. And in doing the podcast, one of the things that I ask people is just like, how are you? And people don't often in interviews just ask me how I am or like, how's your day going? So oftentimes we jump right in and there's not a moment of like, just like connecting or like, what are you working on in your life right now? I think those are two questions. You know, how are you doing and what are you working on in your life? Because as soon as you ask someone, what, what are you working on? It drops them into a place where they have to ask themselves that question. And then it, it removes the normal uh, stock answer that they would give. When you say, how are you? Somebody has to go, I don't know. How am I? you know, I'm good. And when you say, what are you working on? They have to go, what am I working on? You know, 
I would like to be able to step into my life with more power and see mm-hmm. what's on the other side of my fears. Or I'm working on untangling love from need and what that means in my life. You know, so it's like, I have to give you a real answer. So that- I, No, I, I love that. Um, ba- basically, you're activating the search function when you ask, ask the question. You ask a question, somebody's gonna search in their brain for whatever, whatever question you ask them. But interestingly enough, when I ask that question to people, the most common answer I get mm-hmm. is the one that you just gave, which is, I wish more, you didn't say this exactly, but this is what most people say. I wish more people asked me how I was doing. Interesting. Which I, which is, I, it's, I try it's, to ask other people, you know, so I, I try to do what I am asking for. What do you wish that people would ask you? Um. I wish that they would ask me more about the challenges that I'm facing because I have a public face as we all do. And you only get to see my highlight reel, but you don't know. It's basically the same answer that, you, that, that we're talking about. It's just more of lifting the veil and asking me what's going on, you know, in my life. Like if, you know, if you were to ask me that question, I give you an honest answer. I would say at 55 years old, I have a six-year-old daughter mm-hmm. who is the love of my life. And it's really fucking hard pushing 60, going through six-year-olds tantrums. Mm. It isn't easy. Being a dad is wonderful and fucking hard. And during a pandemic, when she hasn't been to kindergarten all year because school is closed and you're trying to do this with a kid, it's hard. Mm. And so what you see is none of that. But, but that's what's, it, what's in here. And then the, the pull between feeling guilty that you're not giving the attention, but also saying, hey, daddy needs time too. So that, that push-pull. So that's, that's how I would answer that one. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great answer. I, I, can, I can only relate with my imagination. I can't relate with my experience, but I know how difficult it has been for parents during the pandemic, even if they know where their next meal is coming from and have a roof over their head still, everyone had very specific challenges to their circumstances that they had to deal with. But I can relate to you, even though it's something that I can only imagine as a, a situation in, in my life. And I, I would say everyone on social media is doing their highlight reel. You know, I was looking at Instagram once and I was looking at my own page and I, I literally had the thought like, I wish I had my life. <laughs> you know, I was like, this guy's life is amazing. <laughs> you know? And I felt far away from who that person was in that moment. And I think that this has to do with unconscious capitalism. It has to do with our society that is so focused on competition rather than connection. And I'm, I'm not an anti-capitalist at all. Like I'm a, ca- a conscious capitalist, yep. which I'm still learning what my definition of that even is. But when everyone is constantly like competing, we wind up having this culture of hero worship where we're either looking up to people or we're looking down on people. And we rarely ever look at people. And so even for you, like somebody that has a brand and has something that people look to, to be inspired by. It's also cool when you say stuff like that right now, because I think that it allows people to feel closer to you because if it's a hero that they're looking up to, what winds up happening is they almost feel like, wow, that's so far away. I could never be like that. But when actually they're looking at their hero, then they can go, Oh, okay. Like, they're just like me. It's incremental and accumulative. And whatever we decide today is going to affect what happens tomorrow. And they're going through their own challenges. And so I can relate to them. And almost that's more inspiring than the things that are impossible to reach, you know? I love that. Well, Q, Mr. Q, in Q, Adam, Adam Q, 
Thank you. This was way better than I thought it was going to be. And I, did, I thought it was going to be amazing. This was beautiful. I know everybody's going to love it. I will link up everything in the show notes so that they know where you are, what you're doing. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? No, if you want to follow me, of course, you can do it online and uh, you can see my highlight reel, but I also try to explore some real stuff. And and then if you want to get my book, it's Inquire Within, and that has all of my poetry. You can do that through the hardcover or you can actually get the uh, audiobook, which I just got nominated for an audiobook award. Oh, the Audi. I forgot to mention that. You got nominated for the Audi. Congratulations. I did. I lost to some book about Chekhov. <laughs> oh, fuck him. So listen, the, the, uh, I'm just kidding. The, uh, the book, when people get it physically, it's a, it's a lung that is like opening and breathing. Only you can turn a hardcover book into a moving organ. <laughs> <laughs> you got to check it out. You got to check it out. Q, thanks, thanks a lot, man. This was awesome. Of course. Thank you for having me, Rob. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.